What's the podcast called? (laughs) (laughs) I know you're going to put that in there now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to What Am I Missing, the podcast where I attempt to fill in the gaps of my knowledge through conversations with friends. I'm your host, Brett Walden, and today I am talking full stop. That's right. I'm the guest today. There's actually a new host on this one. It's a very special episode. It's my wife, Gemma. You've heard me mention her a few times, and uh, I've corralled her into interviewing me um, because I'm an egotistical person. What can I say? Um, I've actually gotten a few requests from people who have been kind enough to listen to the show, and uh, the question that I get asked most often is, um, when are you going to talk about something that you um, are interested in? And I thought, since this is the 25th episode, that this is um, a good enough anniversary, an arbitrary number uh, that seems significant to sit down and actually talk about one of those things that I constantly mention as something that I'm into, so I am here today to talk about the history of animation. Um, I do limit it to the first 30 years uh, pre-Mickey, so if you're hoping to hear some uh, information about the history of Disney and Steamboat Willie and all that, you're going to have to wait. But um, like I said, I had a lot of fun doing this episode. My wife sat down with me. She asked me questions. Uh, Wilbur the dog gets involved a little bit, so it really is a family affair, and uh, hopefully you enjoy it. I do see the pressure now that my guests always talk about being under when you're finally committed to talking about something that you profess to be uh, into and uh, know a lot about. But um, but yeah, I, I pack a lot of information in this. I hope it's not too dense. It's kind of weird being on the other side. And hey, while I'm stroking my own ego, um, I thought I'd read you a review that came up on the Apple Podcast page. Um, this one says, Brett Walden, more like Brat Fall Down. This guy doesn't know anything about nothing. He needs his comedian friends, in quotes, to explain everything to him. What are you missing? A good podcast. Love the pod. Five stars. So thank you, user We Like to Party by the Venga Boys. I will take all of that immediately to heart and internalize it. But um, look, enough preamble. Let's get drawn and quartered, because it's the 25th episode, with me, Brett Walden, and my wife, Gemma. Take it away, Anthony. Hello. Um, I'm sure you can already hear that this is not Brett Walden's voice, Um, but it is another Walden's voice. This is his wife, Gemma Walden. Uh, It is a family affair today. Wilbur is walking around and we've actually moved everything into the living room because it's quite Christmassy in here, isn't it, Brett? Yeah, it's very festive. The lights are on, the fire's going, we have two Christmas trees lit up. Um, Nutcrackers. We have have nutcrackers on the floor. We have mulled wine that neither of us are really enjoying. It's not great. (laughs) It's not great. We were trying to be those people, but it's not working out. Yeah. It might start affecting our conversation later. Yeah, it might get better the more we drink it. Yeah, but it does it does taste like liquid potpourri. Potpourri. What did I call it before? Potpourri. Potpourri. I just assumed that's how you said it in England. I know, I get away with so much saying that. <laughs> and it's still working, and we've been together almost 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm here because the tables have been reversed, and one thing about our marriage is it's full of questions, and I'm always asking Brett questions. And now that it's just going to get recorded. Yeah. 
and uh, you're going to talk to us about something that you're very interested in. Yeah. You're um, going to do the talking and I'm supposed to listen. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I, can, I can see how the stress uh, that I've been putting other people under suddenly um, becomes, I can see why people come in and they go, oh, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but I thought for the 25th episode, I thought it was a pretty momentous number. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we're, we're nearing six months right now. And so I thought, um, I've had enough people kind of talk to me and ask me when I was going to talk about some of these things that I've always mentioned. Um, one of, you know, three s- things that I've always sort of been interested in that I mentioned, Spider-Man mm-hmm. being one of them. Um, I guess the bare naked ladies is another one that people have been interested in and, um, and animation, in general, mm-hmm. Oswald, I have my collection. Steamboat Willie, I mentioned all the... You have a collection? Yeah, where, on my wall. Where is that collection, Brett? In the official What Am I Missing Studios, <laughs> a.k.a. my office. Yep. Um, so I thought that it would be kind of a fun thing. And since you also, when I first started this podcast, I had said that you could come up with a topic that you wanted to do. And <sighs> instead of <laughs> taking me up on that offer, you said... Um, no, but I'll interview you on something. And mm-hmm. so I thought um, it might be fun to talk about um, the history of animation. So here we are. And I got incredibly nervous and managed to put it off till the 25th episode. <laughs> yeah, it was supposed to be the... <laughs> the 10th, I think. The 10th episode and then the 15th episode. Any any sort of significant number, I tried to do it. So here we are, though. We finally made it. 25 seems like a good... It does. How does that relate to us, 25? How can we figure that out? Um, Mm. I have no idea. Like I said, it's very near the six-month mark. Yeah. Um, You know, 52 weeks in a year, 26 episodes. Oh, that's good. Would be the six-month mark. So next next week will be the halfway or halfway to a year mark, I suppose. Which, again, no real significance, but just feels like there is. So I'm endowing it with that. 25, 25th of December. We're in December. I love Christmas appropriate perfect there we go we found why why it works perfect Uh, i don't know why i feel the need to find a pattern but i think it's all there maybe i'll come back and talk about patterns that'd be cool (laughs) well the thing and and what's funny though it's like you saying that what what interests me about especially the early days of animation is it's like anything one thing leads to another thing Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and they start they start intertwining um, certain names keep coming up over and over again. People um, early in the story meet people later on who then influence somebody else later on. And it's just, it, you know, it, it seems very logical that, that things sort of progress forward. Brett, I was supposed to introduce it, but you subtly or not so subtly just found a segue yeah. to make sure we started. Oh, I've been doing this for <laughs> six months. I know how it goes. Um, but, Go ahead. Yep. But there's just, there's, you know, it's just, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think that animation starts with Walt Disney. And that's just fundamentally not true. And even though it stands to reason that if you think about it, even if you know nothing about animation, thinking about it for even a second should tell you, yes, there's stuff that happened before Disney. But there's just not a lot of documentation on it. There's not a lot of information about it because the most significant things happened starting in 1928. But that's Wilbur drinking. That's what, yeah. not us drinking our mulled wine. I just so, wanted to clarify because I'm not talking right now. <laughs> yeah, we're barely drinking it as is. I can smell it. Yeah, it's, it smells great. 
Um, and and I know I'm the one interviewing you. My knowledge on the history of early animation is very small, but just like you know of me, I did do a little bit of reading up on it. Okay. And know that it went, it does go as far back as cavemen. Um, yeah. Which is pretty cool. They use the flickering of the flames and would draw, draw multiple images. and that So when the flames fi- flickered, that it would look like the images were moving. So yeah. I know that we can trace it back as far as that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm excited to hear, you know, not what I read on a Wikipedia page. <laughs> well, and that becomes one of the, mo- one of the more difficult things is kind of uh, tamping down when, when do we start our timeline? How do we define animation as right. far as the history of it goes? Because, yeah, you can trace it back to cave drawings. Yeah. Um, you can move forward uh, a few years past that and you can start to, you know, do the, um, you know, they used to have the the drawings on the paper and you would sort of the view something, it. Something scope? Yeah, it was a scope of some because, sort. I think it was a TH. I don't know. But you would view it through the slits and you would spin it really fast and it would look like the horse was running or that, you right. know. And so, and, and, and in a way, if we're defining animation as the, um, you know, the artificial movement of inanimate objects, then that technically right. falls into it. But what what I'm more concerned about is... Film? Is film. Yeah. Um, animation on film and cartoons as we sort of know them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has a very definite start. Does it? Um, yeah, because you can't go much further back than the advent of film, right. which is 1894. I believe. Oh, wow. I'm um, not going to fact check you. I just believe you. <laughs> Somebody will. <laughs> um, and so, and so, but, but, and, and animation and filmmaking sort of go hand in hand. Um, uh, they, they're, they're sort of, you know, the, the advent of animation sort of starts with the advent of filmmaking um, as we know it today. And so you can kind of trace it back to, and, and what I'm going to focus on is 1898 to about 19. 27 28 okay so the first 30 years of animation leading up to basically the um creation of oswald the lucky rabbit that's really cool and walt disney yeah um would you like to tell us why you're so interested in the uh history of early animation yes i would love to um look at me asking a question yeah that is going to involve you answering you're (laughs) you're proving (laughs) that my job on this podcast is just it's so, you just sit back, you just say what you want, and you sit back. Anyone that knows me knows I've spent my entire life asking questions. It's true. I feel a lot of pressure to live up to that today. <laughs> You're very good at it. Um, why do I like animation? Um, uh, growing, I've been drawing since I was six. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen those drawings. Perhaps. <laughs> Your mom is very proud. Yeah, she bought me my first easel. Um, I think oh. I was six. Maybe four or five, but young, Did young, you get young, an easel young. For Christmas, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so she likes to take credit for that, um, and I don't, I don't begrudge her that. Well, technically, um, she can take credit for everything because yeah. you, you're the son. That's true. She did make me the first son. Um, you have a brother. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Sean. Um, so, so I've been drawing for a very long, long time. I do want to talk about your brother for a second because you, in your drawing as a childhood, your stepdad used to have you guys do drawing competitions. Yeah. Which now, knowing Sean, is 
I think it's very unfair. And I know that they've started doing it with Abby and Aaron, yeah. which are Sean's children. Yeah. Tell that story, Brett, because that's funny. Uh, yeah, when my stepdad... <laughs> and Well, I like I said, I have been drawing since I was about five or six. Um, you know, I got really into it in uh, elementary school. I think I told the story on Ryan Gelotti's uh, episode where I was drawing dinosaurs for the class and kind of teaching them to do it. So I've been, I've been drawing for a very long time. So by the time that my stepdad enters the picture at 10, he starts pitting my brother and I against each other um, in drawing contests, which he would randomly just announce um, during the evening. He would just say, drawing contest, and we would have to go get a piece of paper, and he would give us the topic, and then he would judge them. Um, judging, yep, judging. That's what he would say. <laughs> five minutes, judging, five minutes. Um, and every once in a while, he would throw Sean a bone, because mm-hmm. uh, Sean used to draw. It wasn't really good at trucks. He, yeah, he could draw mechanical things. So yeah. he would do uh, dump trucks and, and um, you know, different like construction equipment and thing and semis. You know, my dad's a semi truck driver. And so he was really into those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Cars. Um, I was never really good and still I'm not that good at like mechanical things. So, so every once in a while, John would throw him a bone and be like, today's topic is you know, uh, 18 wheelers. And then I knew that I was going to lose. But every other time it was you know, just it, unfair. It was unfair. Yeah. Um. And so, but that so that continued. Uh, that continued me uh, drawing, and then I got into middle school, and I started drawing and getting into comics and stuff. And um, by the time I got to high school, it it really came down to: <clears throat> did I want to draw or did I want to act? Because I had gotten into both. Right. Um. And ultimately, I chose to pursue acting because I always thought that drawing was something that I could just always do. I didn't need... And you have. And I have. Yeah. You know, but but that was sort of my rationale was like, oh, I can always draw, but I feel like I need to be trained in acting if I want to continue doing that. I've since learned, no. <laughs> Anybody can act too. Anybody can show up to a, an audition. But my rationale was, oh, I can always just draw. But you did go and get your master's at Cal Arts. Right. 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 So... So what I find that I do is if I'm into something but I don't do it, then I submerge myself into the history of it and the culture of it. So animation, um, you know, um, I was like, well, if I'm not going to be an animator, then I'm going to learn everything about it because it still fascinates me. Um, If I can't play the guitar, I'm going to just learn as much music as I can. Mm -hmm. Acting, improv, I do it. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, we're not the best theater goers, are we? Culturally, no. Right. I don't see musicals. I don't know plays. I don't know actors. I don't go to a lot of movies. I do the thing, and that's it. Yeah. I don't animate, but I know a ton about it. So it's like that's kind of my Mm -hmm. (laughs) trade-off. My rationale is like I because I do this thing, I do it. I know the technical stuff. So that and so then, like you said, different form of expressing your passion, I suppose. Yeah. Because acting you love, acting, actually doing the acting, maybe not necessarily always watching it. Well, and I feel like, I don't know, for me, it's kind of like, I don't, I want to express myself through the profession that I've chosen instead of sort of engaging in what other people are doing in the profession and identifying myself through that. Not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but there are certainly people who sort of do that. They identify themselves through the works of others. Yeah. Um, and I feel if I'm going to do improv or acting, then I should be able to express myself through my own right. work. I don't know. Um, 
But so as far as animation went, yeah, I went to CalArts, mm-hmm. which is the birthplace of Pixar, mm-hmm. um, founded by Walt Disney as a means to create the next generation of animators. And so it, um, it was really kind of cool when I got there to be able to in, engage and indulge in that part of my, you know, in, that side of my life. Um, you know, and I had illustrated in college and I had done uh, graphic, um, or not graphic, um, I had done like the uh, political cartoon for the newspaper and stuff. So I've been drawing all the time, but but I finally got to do like, I finally got to engage in the history of it in the place where basically it, you know, the history lived. Right. Um, and so it just kind of continued on and I start and I just continued to study it independently of any classes or anything else just for myself you know basically bought textbooks and watched documentaries and anything I could because it's just so it's so interesting to me even more so than the character of like Mickey Mouse himself I think the reason why I'm drawn to Steamboat Willie is because that was sort of it was history in the making you know and so and it's it's essentially Mickey with a hat but there's something about it being the first synchronized sound cartoon Mm -hmm which feels significant to me and makes it feel unique and therefore something that I can latch onto is like special and mine. Right. You know? Yeah. And because it wasn't something you were pursuing professionally, it maintained that fun level. I yeah. It was a, ho- it was a hobby yeah. that I could come back to and I could leave if I needed to. And you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the pressure to make money on it. And yeah, even though you have since, which is really cool. Yeah. But he I actually helped pay for our rent in New York city by winning Woot competitions designing t-shirts yeah you know it has it has afforded you you know to make money on it but again not really with that same level of pressure that you need to make a living at it yeah I feel like if if it were something that I was relying on for a paycheck I would have burnt out a long time ago Mm -hmm. and thought drawing is no longer fun for me but still you know as of right now it still remains casual I can just doodle or draw or not draw as I please, you know, mm-hmm. if I have time and start a project and end a project, like, you know, and, and it just, it remains, it remains fun. So that's really cool. Yeah. So now we're going to get into how other people started. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. That, that was good, right? That was a very good segue. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm doing, I'm doing my job. You're going to take over this whole podcast. Oh gosh. I don't think so. <laughs> so tell us, Brett. Yeah. How did it begin? Okay, so for what we're specifically talking about, and we're focusing more on the film aspect of animation, right? So once again, it sort of becomes it's it's hazy. It's hard to start because so many factors influenced what eventually would sort of uh, you know coalesce into modern day filmmaking. Okay, coalesce. I mean, how many points is that word? Can you tell me what that means? <laughs> uh, come together, sort mm-hmm. of meld um, into modern day filmmaking. So so. If we're going back, um, even before filmmaking, what you have is the tradition of um, vaudeville, right? Um, and so you have this this theater form, um, which uh, is is highly performative, highly comedic, and in vaudeville you have these acts which are called um, their lightning sketches. And so it's these artists who will stand with essentially like a blackboard or a, a large piece of paper, and they will tell a monologue while drawing a picture. 
um, and they draw very quickly, and it's sort of the, 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 the sort of idea of the lightning sketch is that it morphs in front of your eyes, and so the artist will draw a picture that ostensibly is one thing, and by the end of the monologue, it will have transformed into something completely different. So, for instance, uh, a, a lightning sketch artist might start by drawing like an ocean um, scene with, mm-hmm. you know, with the water and maybe a few mountains and like the sun, but he'll position the sun in such a way that, um, you know, it's sort of just on the horizon. And then, um, and then as he's telling the story, he'll draw like a house right in front of the ocean. And so, and it all gets incorporated into his monologue. So there's a house on the ocean and he's adding this as he's talking about it. But then suddenly the house, um, he starts using like the lines of the roof of the house and he uses it to create like the frame of a bicycle. So suddenly the house morphs into a bicycle right in front of you. And then he's drawing a rider on top of the bicycle and where the sun was, that becomes the guy's head. And because he drew the sun on the horizon, um, halfway sinking down with the reflection underneath it, you have a full circle, but the top half of the sun becomes the helmet Mm -hmm. and the bottom half of the sun becomes the head, you know? And so it's basically like a very primitive form of animation uh, in a sense what year was this this was this was in the 1890s 1880s 1890s is there any evidence like has anybody reenacted it or you know so anyone can look it up on youtube yeah well that uh, so that's how it starts so so um so then you get um you get edison thomas edison okay who creates the um the vitascope um which is basically an early um projector projecting system for film and um and you know there's there's controversy there because edison stole everything he did but but for our purposes edison has the vitascope that's a different episode yeah exactly um and you've got so so the basically the way it starts is you've got this guy named j stewart blackton who is amongst other things he's a, a lightning sketch artist um he's a performer and he also happens to be a reporter and so uh edison reveals his vitascope and J. Stuart Blackton gets sent down by his newspaper to talk to Edison about this new projector. And Edison sees an opportunity here and he says, well, why don't I film you doing one of your lightning sketches uh, where you draw me? And so, and so J. Stuart Blackton does a lightning sketch of Thomas Edison and Thomas Edison films him for the first time. Wow. And basically talks him into not only buying the the rights to the film itself, but also buying a vitascope and nine other films that Edison... What's a vitascope again? The vitascope is just an, it's a, it's a projecting system. Okay. Um, and there was a lot of different ones going around at the time. The vitascope just happened to be the one that Edison uh, latched onto and promoted for a while. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of like the big one at the time. Gotcha. And it was a new way of projecting um, celluloid through through the means of artificial light onto basically a wall. Okay. Um, just like we know projected today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just kind of a more primitive form of it. But but J. Stuart Blackton does a sketch, um, a lightning sketch on film, buys it from Edison, buys a Vitascope, buys nine films. So now all of a sudden, J. Stuart Blackton is basically, he he's a movie producer. He's got these films and he's going to start distributing them. Um, and so... Uh, uh, at the same, around the same time, they, they're, uh, this guy named Melier is doing these things called trick films. And, um, 
And these are films where they utilize, instead of just filming whatever is happening in front of them, they're actually utilizing the technology of the camera to speed up the film, to slow down the film so that the footage looks like it's going in slow-mo or it's sped up for comedic effect or, you know, they're, they're, they're stopping the film and they're replacing an actor and then they're starting it up again so that, you know, smoke effects, anything to do with like sort of manipulating the actual technology of the film. And they're very popular at this time. So J. Stuart Blackton gets his camera and he's working on making these trick films. And what they're doing is, um, the story is they're up on a roof, and they're creating a trick film, but they find that every time they stop the camera, um, because they're filming whatever it is the subject is that's in front of them, there happens to be a smokestack in the background that they're also capturing, that they obviously can't control, that's bellowing smoke. And so, but every time they stop the camera and turn it on, after they watch the footage again, they find that the smoke is moving Mm -hmm. across the sky in different patterns because obviously they're picking it up at different points right and so that sort of gives him the idea of stop-motion animation is this smoke oh. um, sort of accidentally stumbles upon it where he goes well if I can make smoke move across the sky like that what can I do with these essentially lightning sketches and so he experiments for the first time on um, on this movie called uh, The Enchanted Drawing. And so that's in 1900. Um, and so he essentially draws, um, he draws a man. You, you see him come on, you can watch this on YouTube. He comes on screen, he draws the, f- the face of a man on a blackboard, and then he leaves. And then for the first time, without the artist present on film, the, the drawing on the blackboard sort of like opens his eyes and smiles. Um, A hat appears on him, you know, and it's essentially, oh no, I'm sorry, the Enchanted Drawing, he's still in it. He's basically interacting with the drawing. It's very primitive, but he can like, he takes a pipe or a cigar out of the man's mouth, you know, (laughs) he kind of, he picks up the animated or the drawn hat and it sort of becomes a real one and stuff. So he's interacting with this drawing, but it's all done through like stop motion technology. And so it's kind of a very early form of animation. Right, so that's how we can kind of start our timeline Mm -hmm. is around that time. So then, um, so he starts Vitagraph Studios and he starts distributing all of these movies. Um, The Enchanted Drawing, 1906, Humorous Phases of Funny Faces is another big one. Mm -hmm. Uh, I read that on Wikipedia. Of, Of that one? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that one again, it's you see the artist draw the faces and then he pulls away and then they start interacting with each other. Again, very primitive, but still like very innovative for the time. Um, and then 1907, The Haunted Hotel happens. Um, and so at this time, you get all of these movies about haunted hotels. Um, and this is interesting because a lot of the things, a lot of people think... He put his mulled wine down and got very, <laughs> very animated himself. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> around this time, uh, a lot of people think that, that animated um, cartoons come from the tradition of comic strips, right? Which would stand to reason because comics have been around at this point for decades. Um, in newspapers, all sorts of established things, right? They're really well known. And you would think that because they're drawn and sequential, that it would be sort of... Animated cartoons would be like the natural... Um, sort of air to that tradition, but but in fact they're not at all. The only thing that cartoons and animated um, 
shorts from this time sort of take from comics is the jokes. And so this idea of like haunted hotels was like around in everything at this point. But um, Jay Stewart Blackton creates this one called The Haunted Hotel, where basically a guy shows up into a hotel. It's live action. He shows up in a hotel, and all of the objects around him start moving. Mm-hmm. And, the one, and the reason why this one is significant is because where other ones use, like, wires and obvious, like, trick photography, this one features a, a, a close-up scene of, of essentially bread being sliced by an invisible hand. And it's done in close-up, and there's no obvious wires. And it was... Um, Wilbur's going crazy with the, with the plug. I know. I'm having to play fetch and hold an interview. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, and so this, this, this scene includes bread being sliced by an invisible hand with the knife being lifted and going through it. And people freaked out because you couldn't see the wires. And so everybody's looking at this thing going how the hell did he do this? Right. And it's all done through stop motion animation. Mm -hmm. And so it goes like, it basically goes global as far as like Europe and America are concerned. Everybody's freaking out over this movie. Um, And so, uh, and so that's kind of the beginning of it is this stop motion animation, Um, usually done with either drawings on a chalkboard or with inanimate objects. Right. Um, and, and suddenly you've got all of these filmmakers and all of these people studying the films, going, how are they doing this? How are they doing this? And as they start to figure out, oh, you can stop the camera one frame at a time, take a picture, move it slightly. You know, they're, they're, they're basically figuring it out. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and so people start trying to do it on their own. Okay. Right? So, one, so after this, you get this guy called Emile Cole, who's this Frenchman. Um, mm-hmm. and he's generally considered like the, f- the first animator. Right. Um, and not a lot of people know about him today because a lot of his stuff burned, uh, got destroyed in a fire. And so he created, uh, all of this work and, and it all got destroyed. And so nobody's really ever heard of him, but he was this Frenchman. Um, he was part of this group called the Incoherence. Um, and so he was so and they wasn't ju- it his work that brought him over to the u.s he came over to the u.s yeah yeah um and then and then he did all of this stuff he created all of these films and then literally stop like, animation nope no he was the first the reason he's called the first animator is because he was the first one to use to draw on paper um you know sequential pictures and film them frame by frame oh. Um, whereas before it was on a chalkboard. Yeah. This one he used paper. He drew it on there, um, and his and so his big one comes in 1908 called Phantasmagory, and it's very avant garde. It's very bizarre. It's scary, scary faces, isn't it? Is it like something to do with um, ghosts and stuff? No, it's more. It's more. It's more the story of a clown. Very rudimentary stick figure clown, but he like he's just he he interacts. But but the thing that sort of sets this one apart is it's very much in this this idea of the incoherence group that he was a part of where things morph and change sort of in real time. It almost seems like a stream of consciousness type movie where, you know, he'll this clown goes to a movie theater and there's a woman, there's a fat woman in front of him with feathers in her hair and he's plucking the feathers out, but they're morphing and changing and he's just, you know, it's just like, it's just, it's very sort of surreal. Um, but he creates this movie and it's a hit. Um, and so then he becomes 
one of the first, you know, over his career. And he started very late. He was an old guy <laughs> by the time he started. Um, and yeah, like you said, he created this phantasmagory. His work gets noticed. He comes over to America. He creates all of this stuff, including the first cartoon based on a comic strip. So now you're starting to get comic strip characters um, introduced into cartoons. Whereas before, they would they would do live action versions of comic strips. Mm. Um, so this was the first time that one was animated and animated to look like the the comic strip characters in the newspaper. Um, and so that that that's significant. That one's called the Newlyweds and Their Baby. Um, but so he goes to the U.S. He travels back to France because he wants to move back home. There's a fire at the studio where all of his stuff is being held and it all gets destroyed. And so he, um, so he kind of just like disappears into the, you know, the, the, the background of history, um, for a really long time, but he starts this company called, uh, Gaumont. Um, and, and so he inspires, uh, the work of Gaumont inspires this guy named Windsor McKay. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the first 30 years of animation, you you can basically break it up into the three decades. Right. So the first decade is that like 1900 to 1910 period. Right. Mm -hmm. It's very rudimentary. It's very much still rooted in that vaudeville um, lightning sketch. The artist is always a part of it somehow. In a lot of these films, you always see the artist kind of like start out. Right. They're always the star of the cartoon. Sure. They draw the thing, you know, you see their hand, sometimes their hand will come in and they'll, you know, but they're always sort of like these godlike figures in the cartoons. And it's just a lot of trying to figure out what can we do with this medium? How can we make things move? Mm -hmm. What can we do? Um, so then the second decade, you start to get into like Windsor McKay, right? Who is amazing. Amazing. Why? He just, he creates these beautiful images um he's a newspaper guy he draws cartoons his most famous one is little nemo in slumberland if you ever get a chance to see it maybe i'll, I'll put it on my facebook page just you could also show me at home i'll show well, i'll show you <laughs> <laughs> i'm talking to the listener now um but so he creates this cartoon or this comic strip little nemo in slumberland and it's just the most lush lavish just unbelievable just illustrations that you've ever seen in your life he messes with perspective he messes with dimension he starts to break out of um what other comics are doing at the time and starts messing with panel size um he has another comic uh about a boy who sneezes all the time who literally will sneeze so hard that he breaks the borders of his comic strip so he's starting to like kind of expand and break out of the the rigid format of the comic strip and and uh and so he and he's also like kind of a vaudeville performer as well and so he is home one day and his son um has a flip book mm -hmm. and he's flipping through the flip book and Windsor McKay sees him and he gets this idea of oh I, I think I can do that and and animate my stuff mm -hmm. in the same way that a flip book is sort of one drawing at a time and so he creates um little nemo in 1911 the cartoon the animated uh cartoon and and it's just like and it's the first time that anyone had ever drawn like background into an animated 
cartoon. Okay. Whereas before it was always just about like a face or like a character that was just sort of like moving his hand or doing whatever. Now all of a sudden he's he's drawing backgrounds into his character and they're lush and they're beautiful and they're exactly the same style that he uses in his um, in his comic strips. And so he's self-funding, he's drawing them all himself. And, uh, you know, he's, so he's doing up to Little Nemo, I think was, uh, he claimed it was like 4,000 drawings to make, right? And it's this little short. And it basically just shows off, once again, it just shows off the animation. There's not really a story to it, there, you know, but, but it just, it's just like the, the perspective of, for somebody who was like untrained in this and basically taught himself, it's amazing. And so he, um, so then, so then he goes on to create another one called "The Story of a Mosquito," and it's, uh, and this one's about a mosquito who sneaks into a guy's room and basically sucks sucks his blood, and every time he sticks his his beak into the guy's head, he drinks the blood, and you can just, you know, he just he grows uh, anatomically uh, correct, mm-hmm. you know, and and you can just see him getting heavier and heavier, but and his. This is sort of apocryphal, but Windsor McKay's story was. This is sort of what. It's apocryphal. It's a, It's probably not true. This is this is what we spend our life doing. Brett uses these amazing words, and then I have to get him to define them. Right. Or Google them. <laughs> but um. So which means what? It's 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 probably made up. But Windsor McKay claims that when he made um how uh, how a mosquito works, or the story of a mosquito, um that people thought that he was working with a real mosquito on wires. It was that sort of uh, amazing. Um, And so so he sort of, whether that was true or not, it led to his third cartoon, which is sort of his most famous one and probably the most significant of this time period, which was Gertie the Dinosaur. Um, And and the reason why is because it, he wanted to, to utilize... Uh, an object or a subject in his cartoon that couldn't be manipulated by wires. He wanted to show, like, I'm going to bring a brontosaurus back to life to prove to prove mm-hmm. that I'm not just manipulating something real or tracing something real, right? So he creates Gertie the dinosaur, and it becomes this huge sensation. Um, and it's, it's, but the thing is, it's not a film. It's a, it's a vaudeville show. It's meant for the stage. And so, um, and so he creates this Gertie the dinosaur to, you know, basically come out, walk out on stage, and then he can interact with it live and in person on oh, the screen. That's cool. And so while Gertie is on stage with him, he can say, jump, you know, um, yeah. you know, eat this apple and he'll throw a cardboard apple up and, you know, and then the little animated apple will show up, you know, in time to the throw. And then, so it's just like, it's very cool. It's very innovative. And it's one of the first times, if not the first time, that a cartoon character has sort of displayed an independent um, personality, mm-hmm. which is significant. Because sometimes Gertie won't do what Windsor McKay says, right? He'll he'll say, <laughs> you know, come down here and she'll shake her head, you know? Oh, and, now I'm going to have to watch this. Oh, it's it's amazing. And, and... You know it's amazing because Gertie actually is in Hollywood Studios oh. at Disney. In the... It's, she's the ice cream the shop. Mi- oh, I thought it was in the, in the mini lake. Across from um, Indiana Jones. Okay. Uh, the Spectacular. There's like a dinosaur-shaped ice cream shop 
um, I think on the shores of water, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Okay. Uh, but that's Gertie. That's Gertie. Um, wow. And so she... It's not the one that's in the lake, is it, that wears Christmas decorations? Which one? There's a, I think there's a dinosaur in the mini lake in Hollywood Studios. Um, kind of next to Frozen and... Have to look at it. I mean, it is by Frozen. I don't know if it's the same, but it's a. I think it's an ice cream shop. I think it's a Gertie ice cream shop. Okay. But that, but that's Windsor McKay's. So that's so that's like his big thing. And then he creates a few other things after that. That one's ten thousand drawings, um, and uh, you know. But that he creates a bunch of stuff after that. But that's kind of his most significant thing. It's just oh, like yeah. he he sort of introduces personality into these characters, um, and you know, and and he kind of sets. He kind of sets the 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 palette or the palette. Um, he kind of, it's not the palette. Um, he 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 sets. Mold wine. Yeah, he sets what <laughs> makes American versus European animation. Um, and that's how, what we're drinking. And how they differ. So um, so suddenly American animation becomes about that realism, mm-hmm. about the weight, about the physics of the thing. You know, he really sort of sensed the template. That's the word I'm looking versus for. Versus what? Versus like a European model with like Emile Cole, who was more um, avant-garde, a little more sort of, uh, you know, less less confined by physics and actual, you know, like things morph and shape and differ into each other. It reminds me a lot of... Um, like the little prince, mm-hmm. you know, um, where the little prince will, he'll draw his drawings and like adults will see one thing, but he'll see another thing, you know. And so it's kind of that, I, like the European model is very much that to me, mm-hmm. where it's like the adult sees a hat, you know, but it but it could also be a snake who ate an elephant, you know, and it's that kind of thing. Whereas the American sensibility suddenly becomes more about like the realism of it, mm-hmm. right? And that's down to to Windsor McKay. And so... And so he's sort of, like I said, he's sort of self-financing. He's drawing these things all by himself, and he's finding success doing it. Um, and he invented uh, quite a few things. He sort of stumbled upon a lot of things that animators still use to this day, like in-betweening, which is the process of sort of drawing the major, um, you know, the major points of an animation Mm-hmm. Um, and then sort of drawing the stuff in between as opposed to drawing sequentially. Right. You know, if you want to draw somebody jumping, you're going you're gonna to draw them at their lowest point, squatting down, right. and then you're going to jump them at their highest point in the air, and then you're going to fill in all the gaps in between. And that's the in-between. And that's called in-betweening, okay. right? Instead of, instead of just drawing something sequentially and hoping that you get the action right. Um, I, what's the difference? The difference is that you, uh, basically he was saying, what are the extremes of the movement and the action here? I'm going to draw those first. Okay. Because the stuff in between isn't as significant as imp- or as important to the action. Okay. But I need him to reach, you know, I need the dinosaur to reach this level. And then he'll go back. And, and then he'll in. go back. And, and that's f- in-betweening. And that's called in-betweening. Gotcha. He also created cycling which was a method of reusing animation, um, specifically... Uh, Disney does that a lot. Yeah, 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 a lot of animators use it, but he mm-hmm. sort of figured it out, where he was like, oh, I can draw one cycle or like, you know, two steps of a walking pattern, and then I can just reuse what I've already drawn and keep photographing them. Gotcha. You know, um, and then and then just like, you know, registration marks and things like that, just to keep the keep the drawings in order and stuff. So right. he's, he's figuring out all these things, but he's doing them all by himself. Um, 
Meanwhile, there's this other guy called, how we doing? Should I breathe for a second? You yeah. following all of this? I, I, li- I like to let you go. Um, those that know Brett, he's a man of few words. So when you get him on a topic that he really enjoys, I like to just let him go. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Um, I often do a lot of the talking, so it's nice to kind of be the listener. <laughs> but Well, good. You're super passionate. It's kind of cool to watch. Yeah. Well, so, and listen to. Well, so um, okay, so he's drawing. He's using paper. So he's, he's back at it. He's tracing everything. Um, he's tracing everything one piece of paper at a time. So, like I said, he's utilizing backgrounds, but he's tracing that background onto every single piece of paper. You know what I mean? And he's got an assistant doing it with him, but it's 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 a lot of work. Ten thousand drawings where he's drawing the same shore of the lake every single time he's drawing the same tree every single time you know um and in the meantime there's well why didn't he just use cycling um because you can you can only use uh, because you can only use cycling on action that's repeatable oh not when you're zooming into something or if you're drawing a lake wait i suppose i'm confused by that then so he's so so once again we're so early in the process that that they're still trying to figure out how to do this right okay and so he's he's so he's drawing the same background over and over again instead of using the same background and then layering we haven't got to layering yet nobody's figured that out yet Ooh. yeah um but what they have figured out in the meantime is this is this thing called slash technique um which was discovered by uh raul beret i think i'm saying that right you're doing great with the names thank you yeah <laughs> Unless I've just mangled that last one. But you could literally make it up and I'd be, yeah, that sounds, that sounds perfect. That's and true. it's not until later I'll go back to my Wikipedia page and be like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's not real. Um, so We're still both drinking mulled wine. Yeah. It's actually getting better now that it's cooling down. And, I mean, we are drinking wine still, so I'm sure it's tasting That's better true. anyway. That's true. Um, so Beret creates this um, slash technique, which essentially is a precursor to cell animation mm-hmm. where... They, he draws the background on to a piece of paper and then he can rip it um, strategically in order to place the main action or the main character. And so he basically, instead of having to redraw the background for every, every frame, he's figured out a way to sort of maintain that background for longer. Okay. So if the character is sort of walking, you know, from left to right, he can... He can rip part of the background out, draw the character on top of it, and then photograph it, and then, you Put know... that rip part back in? And then he can rip it again, and he can draw... Do you it. mean so, like rip, like you rip a piece of paper? Yeah, like physically ripping and creating a hole. Oh. Um, and so this is sort of like, I guess... I didn't know if you were using a fancy word. No, no, no. I think this is nominally better than what Windsor McKay was sort of doing, but still, you know, kind of time-consuming and um, archaic. Um, but so that, so that's, that's happening. Windsor McKay is not using it. So then what happens is this guy, John Bray comes along. Okay. Mm -hmm. John Bray is an animator, cartoonist, comic guy. He has this thing. He has this comic about these teddy bears that's becoming pretty popular. And so he decides I'm going to animate this. So he wants to animate all these teddy bear characters. But what he finds is he does the math on it and he says, okay, if I have to create this that's Wilbur. <laughs> this many, you know, this many feet of animation of film in order to create this uh, cartoon, um, you know, whatever it is, a thousand feet, 
2,000 feet, whatever it is. If each thing is this many frames per second and I have to do this many character, you know, he basically he figures out like in order to create a two-minute cartoon, I'm going to have to do 40,000 drawings. And he's like, that's way too much. So he creates, um, he creates basically a division of labor where he starts saying, instead of being like one-man operations, which animation has been historically up until this point. That is so much work. It's so much work. And yeah. he goes, I'm not doing this much work. Right. And so he starts, he's basically like the, uh, what's his name? Henry Ford or whatever. He creates the assembly line for animation. He just starts delineating tasks. Mm-hmm. He gets workers in. He gets assistance. Kind and of he, getting a studio then. And he starts getting like this studio system in place. Okay. Um, and so... What his problem is, or what his issue is, is that in doing so, he tries to patent everything mm. involving animation. And so not only does he patent this sort of like studio system, this division of labor, um, he starts trying to patent in-betweening and cycling and Cheeky. all of these techniques. And basically, he realizes, like, I can just go after these guys because they don't really have the legal means to fight it. And some did. Windsor McKay was able to sort of say like, no, man, I did this. But but Bray tried to go in and say, yeah, I invented all of these things. And so he's not looked at very kindly, you know. Well, yeah. But but so he <laughs> but but he starts formalizing the thing, the 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 uh, the animation system so that. And what year is this? Do you know? Um, this is around the same time. So this is around uh, 19. I think 15 or 16. It's really early. It's really early. Yeah. Significant. I mean, like I said, Steamboat Willie doesn't make a debut until 1928. Right. All of this is happening 30 years beforehand. So, so. Well, this, for 13. Well, I mean, everything that I've been talking oh, about. Oh, okay. But like, yes, this is. Math is also my strength. <laughs> this is well over a decade <laughs> before all of that. Disney hasn't even really entered the picture yet. Um, so, so he's, um, He's trying to patent everything. He's creating this division of labor, and what? But but what they do sort of figure out is that he he looks at like what Windsor McKay is doing, and he's going, you know what? Every time you retrace that shoreline or that background on paper, you know your um, variation of line may be slight, but when you project that thirty yeah. feet into the air, that thing wobbles, you know. And so he was like. That's terrible. And he really didn't like it. And so what he figures out is, what if we draw the background once and then we make photocopies of it? They needed me because I came up with this like 10 minutes ago. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So he starts, they start photocopying um, backgrounds and patenting that. And I think that was like the very first patent that they made. Um, so, So again, Bray, not looked upon very kindly, but still significant to the process. Um. Try to get, take credit. Yeah, so. he, I mean, he and and he realized like legally he had the, you know, the monetary power to to kind of do that. And there were people who pushed back. He he, um, you know, he had hired this guy um, Terry uh, Paul Terry, who only who wasn't significant so much in the Bray Studio system at the time, but would go on to create Terry Tunes um, in the 1930s and 40s. You know, uh, which then did like Heckle and Jekyll and Mighty Mouse and Tom Terrific and all sorts of things. So, But he kind of started at this time as well. Um, so uh, 1917, mm-hmm. 1916, 1917, World War I breaks out. The Army is looking for a way to um, 
sort of get well for the for the U.S. for the U.S. Yeah, <laughs> Ni- yeah. We've been in it a while. That's true. Um, so the army starts requesting training films, animated mm-hmm. training films, and so they go to John Bray, um, which would eventually be known as Paramount, by the way, John Bray Studios. Um, which would, oh, that small studio. Would have been, yeah. <laughs> um, so the army comes and requests training films, and in the meantime, uh, Bray Studios has uh, hired this guy called Max Fleischer. And um, you know Fleischer because I showed you some of their cartoons the other day. Max Fleischer and his brother create uh, a method called rotoscoping, mm-hmm. which is the filming of live action and then the tracing over of in order to create animated cartoons Mm -hmm. and so max fleischer gets drafted these names into the war you're doing so good with these names and they're not you know (laughs) ben smith no no but uh if you know animation you know the you know fleischer um he gets drafted into the war bray complains says how am i going to keep making these films for you if you keep taking all my top animators so the army says all right we're going to keep him in the army, but he's going to be an animator for us. And so he basically utilizes his rotoscoping techniques in order to create these films. And and the way that he Wait, does it... he is able to tell the military... Yeah. Um, no, no, no. He's not going to go and protect the country. He's going, <laughs> to, he's going to draw. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's doing a sort of... Sir, you know, he's... What he's doing... So what, what Fleischer does is he's filming the use of these sort of weapons, tanks and guns and all sorts of things that the army is going to be using. And then he rotoscopes them and essentially makes animated cartoons to show soldiers how to use these new, this okay. new technology. All right, all right. Um, and so that's sort of, you know, that's where uh, sort of rotoscoping starts in 1917. Um, in 19, so the war ends. Um, 1920 is a significant year. Um, the debut of Thomas Cat is the name of the cartoon. Not a lot is known about it, but it is the first color cartoon, 1920. Um, it flops, but it was the first color cartoon. Um, so that's significant. Um, Why does it flop? It just wasn't good. Oh, yeah. Well, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> that's a reason for it to flop. At this point, you start to get... Um, you know, it's it's the the magic is sort of gone as far as like whoa that thing's moving by itself and mm-hmm. it's you know and it's more like people are looking for actual quality you know and so um, and that's why I think the 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 Bray Studio system becomes significant because they start pumping out more and more cartoons and it becomes more ubiquitous. It's 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 another one of those words. <laughs> you know, there's there's more there's more to choose from. Mm-hmm. It's it's not the novelty of like oh a new cartoon it's like ugh there's cartoons all over the place show us something good right right but there's still all these innovations happening so Fleischer um, he's got his rotoscoping the war ends suddenly um, there's this there's this output of like literature regarding uh, animation and how it's done um, and what there's the, the, one of the most significant um, books comes out and I can't remember the name of it but it comes out and uh, this this young boy from Kansas City um, gets his hands on it called Walter Elias Disney and he sounds familiar yeah and so he uh, reads this book and he decides that he wants to start getting into this this kooky animation thing now he had a company before Walt Disney that went bankrupt right 
Yeah, so that's how it starts. So he um, he decides that he's going to get in um, to this animation gig. He gets together with his friends mm-hmm. um, of iWorks. Uh, uh, gosh, Harmon and Ising. Now you could really just be pulling names. Like, okay. <laughs> Who would go on to actually do more with Warner Brothers, but they all started at the same time. Um, and he creates this company called Laughagrams. Mm-hmm. Um, and Laughagrams is, uh, you know... Not significant as far as like the history of animation goes, except that Walt Disney would become Walt Disney, mm-hmm. right? If Walt Disney doesn't become who he is in 1927, Laughagrams is just another thing, mm-hmm. you know? This isn't a definitive list of everything that's been created. In the meantime, so many people in America and Europe are creating things, right? And Disney is just another one of them. He's creating local things for local markets. Uh, the Alice comedies is sort of his big one. Um, and that used animation and live. Yeah, it was kind of, it was kind I mean, I would say it's almost significant only because it kind of flipped the, tra- up to this point, the traditional um, script on its head. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of cartoons up to this point utilized animated characters in real life settings, they it's- would put real-life Alice into an animated world. Which is fascinating, and it still is. Yeah, I mean, it's basically what Roger Rabbit did to Grey. I was going to say that. Yeah. I still find it fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Put me in a cartoon. I want to be in a cartoon. Yeah, it's not great. Oh. If you ever watch the Alice comedies, but but again, it's, no, but the idea is it's great. more about the idea and yeah. the, and the techniques, right? Clearly, Walt. <laughs> you just took my idea and said that's not great. No, <laughs> put no. you in a cartoon? No way. No, that's not a great idea. <laughs> no, the Alice comedies—they're not great. But but again, you can see, you can already see how Walt is innovating. He's mm-hmm. already thinking. You know, what can we do with this medium? Um, the only thing that's sort of significant about this time, as far as it connects to the future, um, there's a lot been a lot written about Walt Disney, obviously, and, and I wanted I do want to get into it on a, in a future conversation. Um, what fifty? Yeah, episode fifty. Um, Got some time. Every twenty five episodes, I want to do this. Um, but uh, so he connects with this woman called Margaret Winkler, who is a former secretary, I believe, at Warner Brothers. Um, kind of strikes out on her own. She becomes the the first female producer and distributor of animated cartoons. Mm-hmm. And she uh, produces and distributes um, Coco the Clown, mm-hmm. who's like who's considered the first cartoon star. I have an image in my head. I think I know who that is. Yeah, so Coco is created by Max Fleischer, the mm-hmm. Fleischer brothers, and is rotoscoped. Um, he is uh, he's the star of this uh, series called Out of the Inkwell. And again, same idea. The animator, as God, creates the character, sort of creates him out of an inkwell, and then, you know, the, the cartoon sort of realizes he has life and sort of dances around to see what he can do, right? It's, it's, I mean, that is cool. It's cool, you yeah. know? It's just, it's, it's, it's the template. It's what you see at this point. It's just, it's still such a new medium that people are just like, isn't this crazy? A drawing is moving on its own. Um, but Coco the Clown sort of becomes, and I think it's due to the rotoscoping, and because the movement was so realistic, and because they used a lot of, um, you know, a lot of actual footage from like, uh, you know, Cap Calloway and Al Jolson, and sort of like these these people that they could really imbue and endow Coco the Clown with um, other people's personality, but it wasn't his own. But 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 he became sort of like the first star 
of that middle decade of the first 30 years of animation. And so Margaret Winkler is representing Max Fleischer. And so she's got Coco the Clown under her belt. She also represents um, Felix the Cat, Pat Sullivan. I just thought phrasing there, Brett. What's that? Got Coco the Clown under her belt. Could happen. Ooh, feisty. Yeah. Yeah. He's rotoscoping. <laughs> um, so she's representing essentially the two biggest cartoon characters at this time, Felix the Cat and Coco the Clown. Wow. While Disney reaches out to her. And a female. And a female. She's doing great. That's awesome. She's doing great. While Disney reaches out, says, I've got this thing. I've got this Alice comedy. Would you like to distribute it? She says, yes. So that works in his favor. Well, yeah. Right? So now he's got Margaret Winkler, Winkler Productions, um, distributing his cartoons all over. Margaret Winkler goes on to marry Charles Mintz, who's a significant name in the history of what would eventually become known as Universal Studios. Charles Mintz takes over... Winkler Studios, eventually. She kind of drifts off into the background and retires. Charles Mintz takes over, so now he's running the Disney stuff. Um, moves, Convinces them to move out to L.A. to create cartoons for Mintz, right? Alice Comedies, kaput. Right. Falling off the map. I think I know where we're going. Right? Not that great. So he says, you need to create something new, Right. And he's really pushing for this character called Oswald, right? So that's sort of where that happens, right? I don't want to get too much into it because that's going to be an entire episode. But this is how Universal and Disney kind of co-mingle at the, at the beginning. That's really interesting. This is how Universal ends up with Oswald the, right. yeah. the rabbit because mm-hmm. Disney worked for them yeah. um, until he broke away. So, so that's, kind of, that's kind of the journey of Disney in that point. And, and, you know, and Winkler. So that's kind of the beginning of the third decade, the end of the second decade. Okay. 1920, you know, I, 1923 is really sort of where Disney kind of starts. Um, but he's, he's a known name from Kansas City. He's not really doing much. The biggest star of early animation and the first real star is Felix the Cat. Okay. Okay. Didn't know that. Yeah. So, um, created by Otto Mesmer um, and Pat Sullivan. Is that that's not the same cat that came in the commercials later on for cat food? Is it? Uh, or is that just in the UK? <laughs> he might have. I think it might be. It was a cat that played the piano. Felix has been. I mean, he he rose in popularity. He dropped off in popularity after Sullivan died, and he he came back. Am I allowed to Google? You can look this? it up. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, and incidentally, Felix the Cat was m- my first sort of cartoon crush, I, I suppose. D- I did not know that. Yeah. Um, Almost 10 years together. If you, <laughs> um, if you go back to early, early Brett, you will find that he likes to buy a lot of t-shirts with Felix on it. He buys hats with Felix on it. Like for some reason, he was drawn to Felix the Cat. Well, but cover your ears. Um, and so... Do you see that? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's called Felix, but that's not him. But it was an animated cat. Yeah. Well, so here's the interesting thing about that. So Felix comes out, and suddenly you get this influx of cat cartoon characters. Okay. Right? So, um, and like I mentioned... I feel like they're going to be related. I'm going to have to follow up next time we do the 50th episode. Maybe. Um, so in 1919, 
Um, Earl Hurd, who mm-hmm. created, oh, Earl Hurd, works for the Bray Company, creates cell animation. Celluloid had been used in animation before that, but for different reasons. Earl Hurd figures out, oh, I can just paint the background once and then use the, and draw. Finally. On, right. Draw, My people. Draw, <laughs> yeah. He draws on top of Efficient. the cell. And says, oh, this is much better. So 1914 cell animation is um, created. Earl Hurd, although he gets the patent for it, he works for the John Bray studio. And so Bray, as is his want, um, basically says, well, you work for me, so this is my patent, right? Creates a partnership, quote unquote, with Earl Hurd, but it's, it's in name only. Bray doesn't know anything about him. He doesn't care to know anything about him. He just wants the patent for cell animation. So once that's discovered and patented, suddenly all of these people can start utilizing it. I don't think I like thinking about animation in such a business sense. It's definitely, it is a business. It definitely, you know. know. It got really. Once John Bray takes over and figures it out, like it becomes a business. Yeah. Um, And even Windsor McKay, uh, in one of his later films, The Sinking of the Lusitania, starts using cell animation instead of retracing all of the Mm things. so, uh, but Felix the Cat, Otto Mesmer, and Pat Sullivan uh, refuse to use cell animation. They, they're using the slash technique. So they're kind of old-fashioned already, mm-hmm. even though this technology's been around for five or six years. They're, they're, all, they're sticking to the old stuff, right? But, so Earl Hurd um, creates cell stuff. He's kind of taken over the studio after Bray has left. He is backed up on all of his orders. They can't fulfill everything that the studio has been asked to do. And so he calls up this guy, Pat Sullivan, who's this Australian animator, come over to the States, found some sort of level of success, enough that, that Heard kind of calls him and says, hey, look, I need cartoons. Can you create something for me? Sullivan says, no, but I've got this other guy, Otto Mesmer, who might be able to do something for you. So he contacts Mesmer. He says, can you create a cartoon for this guy? Um... Mesmer says, yeah, I've got this idea for a cat, kind of Charlie Chaplin-esque. I'll draw it up for you. So he creates this cartoon about a black cat at the time called Master Tom. Doesn't have a name yet. He's just called Master Tom. And that cartoon is called Feline Follies. And um, immediately it's like the guy at the studio loves it. He asks for a second one. So he creates another one, Musical Muse. Um, and this is in 1919, right? He's still called Master Tom, but it's already like people love it. And there's, there's, so you remember 1920, you get another cartoon. The first color cartoon is about a cat. So mm-hmm. as soon as Master Tom hits. I'm going to need a diagram soon with all these dates and names. I know. Um, I'm trying to keep them as sequential as possible. Um, but it's, again, <laughs> I hit Disney first because he's not as significant as Felix the Cat. Mm-hmm. Felix really inspires what comes later on for Disney. At the time, it was just like Felix was the biggest thing around. So all of a sudden, all of these cat uh, characters start entering the scene, right? For some reason, it's just like cats everywhere. Coco the Clown gets a cat, Um, you know, um, or dogs. It's just like all of a sudden, all these uh, funny animals, as they're called, start entering the scene. Betty Boop and her boyfriend are both dogs, Right? Not a lot of people know that. Betty starts out as a dog and eventually evolves into a human. Her boyfriend stays a dog for some reason. Hmm. Um, 
uh, you know, and so all of these characters are suddenly getting cats and they're getting these animals and they're getting these things. And that's because of Felix, because he was just so big. So by his third cartoon, he gets his name Felix, um, which, uh, you know, in 1919 story is, is named after feline, which means cat and Felicity, which means good luck. So he's like the good luck cat. And Aww. that's where he gets his name. Um, He's significant because even more so than Gertie the Dinosaur, even more so than Coco the Clown, he's got a personality, but we don't see the animator in the cartoon. So that's new. So, yeah. So we start to see this evolution from the beginning to 1920 of the animator slowly removing himself as sort of like the godlike figure who's controlling the the animation. And what you've got is Otto Mesmer... um, is sort of imbuing his own personality through the character okay. instead of inserting himself into it. So now you've almost got a fully fleshed out cartoon character that has a personality of his own. He's got opinions. He's got vices, right? For the first time, you've got cartoons that are dealing with prohibition, with alcoholism, with homelessness, all sorts of these very sort of grown-up things. And, you know, um, and he's very Chaplin-esque. Um, the drawings are very sort of... So this is where it becomes significant for Disney. The drawings very early on of Master Tom are very jagged. He's, a, he's an alley cat. He's a tomcat. You know, he's, he, 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 he's very jagged. He's very sort of dirty looking. Later on, they start rounding out his shape. He becomes more circular. He becomes softer, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the success of Felix and the look of him other cartoonists start realizing, oh, we're just going to start copying that. And so that's where you get Oswald, which is just Felix with long rabbit ears. <laughs> you get Mickey, which is just Felix with round mouse ears, right? And you get all of these different characters that suddenly become, you know, Bosco is a little uh, African boy, African-American boy, but he's just Felix as a human, you know? And so, and, and, and really he started out that way because Otto Mesmer found it easier to draw basic shapes and animate basic shapes. And the reason that he's all black is because then you don't have to fill in so much detail, right? There is a slight racial undertone to Felix Mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, at the time, uh, black youth, especially in pop culture, were seen as sort of like energetic, funny, you know, things for our amusement and so I think that was sort of there in Mm -hmm. the visual just as like you saw him and you understood like oh he's 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 kooky you know he's um but but he also was significant because he wasn't humanoid he represented something that that suddenly the viewer could put themselves into because he was he was so far removed from the looks of a Coco the Clown or a Buster Brown or a um you know, any of these other humanoid characters that had been animated up until that point, suddenly you've got this funny animal that you could kind of project yourself onto. Oh, he's just like me. Oh, he just did that thing that my, you know, my brother does or whatever. And so people are suddenly drawn to this character Mm -hmm. in record numbers. And by 1926, he's the second most popular figure in the world behind Charlie Chaplin. Oh my goodness. Um, 1928, RCA is doing a television test where they're, um, they're trying to 
you know, they're trying to figure out their, uh, you know, the, the, the screen. They're trying to figure out the filming process for what would eventually become television. And they use a doll of Felix the cat because he's black and white. So the contrast is perfect for them to fine-tune their process. And so they take this doll, um, I think it's made of paper mache, and they set it on like a, a essentially a turntable, and they just turn it for two hours a day, and they're filming it. Okay. Um, and so Felix essentially becomes the first TV star because it's just him on camera sitting for two hours a day on a turntable. Turn and even I think after they figured it out, they continued to show it because he was just so popular. But that's, you know, one of the things about um, uh, uh, once Winkler sort of loses the rights to distribute Felix and they move on to another distribution company, they start commercializing the hell out of it. Songs are being written about Felix the Cat. Plushes are being distributed about Felix the Cat, first in stores and then in movie theaters itself. Demand is going up. I need to have Felix the Cat on something, right? And so it becomes this just like national craze of this character, and everybody um, everybody loves him. He's being licensed everywhere. He's having songs written about him, plays, merchandise, watches, clocks, baby oil, anything that you could think of. Essentially, if somebody came in with a product to um, Pat Sullivan and said, we want to put Felix's face on this, he said, okay, right? So he blows up. He, by 1926, he's huge. Meanwhile, Walt Disney is, um, around this time, he's starting to figure out Oswald. He's starting mm-hmm. to figure out his own studio system, what he wants his cartoons to be. He contacts Mesmer, and he says, look, I'm working on this new project. I want it to be big you know, send me over your best guys, right? Um, And they say, no, Sullivan won't do it, right? But in the meantime, Mesmer's going, look, they're using the cell technique. We're still using the slash technique. They've got updated equipment. They're starting to move into color and sound. Uh, I guess not color at that point, but but sound. We need to update our stuff. Mm -hmm. And Sullivan says, no. Whoa. it's been working for us so far, this is what we're going to do, right? And so that's what happens. Disney comes along. By 1927, Oswald starting to gain notoriety, Mm -hmm. right? By 1928, Steamboat Willie changes the game entirely. Suddenly, Felix isn't looking so good by comparison. The cartoons just suffer because Sullivan refuses to upgrade. Wow, okay. And so it just. I can see his hesit- I can see why he was hesitant. Yeah. The success he achieved. I mean, it was that it was kind of the same. You know, you hear a lot of stories around that time <clears throat> of film studios who just wouldn't move over to sound. It was like this is working for us. Why would we? You know what I mean? And so it was like a lot of the up and comers who were just around at the right place at the right time latched onto this sound thing and they succeeded. And a lot of the the old studios failed because they just couldn't make the transition. Mm-hmm. And Sullivan was one of them. And so, um, you know, by 1928, 1929, Felix isn't as popular anymore. Disney, Mickey has definitely taken over the mantle as far as being like the the most popular cartoon character. Now, he came up with Mickey or Steamboat Willie because he wasn't able to use Oswald, right? Right. So, um, yeah. So in a nutshell... um, because he was innovating so much and because he wanted to use the most updated techniques and, and equipment, um, he, the Oswald cartoons started becoming more and more expensive for uh, mints to 
produce, essentially. Disney was asking for more and more money. And so Mintz essentially said, well, I've got a whole stable of animators here. I own this property. Forget it. I'm just mm-hmm. going to give him to, to them. And so he took Oswald from Disney, essentially, because it was a cost-saving measure. And, in, and so in the meantime, while Disney's time with Oswald was winding down, he was sort of secretly conversing with his animator of iWork saying, we need to create a new character. I think he came out came up with it quite casually. I think it was, was it on a napkin or something? There's a few stories. Again, it's, it's, it's very apocryphal. I don't believe, you know, the, 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 the famous story is that he was on, he was on a meeting with Charles Mintz in New York, traveling back to LA. Yeah. There was a mouse on the train that he was riding on and he got the oh. idea for it. I don't personally believe that to when be the case. When he came up to him and he like, you know, tipped his hat and he yeah. was like, ooh, I'm going to make you a cartoon. Yeah, the mouse happened to be wearing little <laughs> red pants and stuff. And I'm whistling. Yeah, he was, it was Asking fully, his ticket. it was, <laughs> it was fully formed idea. He was like, oh, we won't be on a train, we'll be on a boat. Yeah. And that's how it came. Exactly. It. Yeah. Um, I think what's more likely is that uh, he needed a character quick. Mm-hmm. And again, following the mold of Felix and Oswald, they just, they, they picked a small, funny animal that was easy to draw. From cat to rabbit to mouse. Yeah. It was just a natural progression. Um, the original name was Mortimer Mouse. Oh, yeah. uh, Disney's wife that. said that's a terrible name. You should call Good him. Good for her. <laughs> you should call him Mickey. I'm way to go f- to him for listening to her. Yeah. Um, but so, Mickey. Do you know why Mickey? Um, I well, don't know Steamboat that. Steamboat Willie, really. I don't. Well, Steam, so Steamboat Willie is the name of the character right. that, um, that Mickey was Mickey portraying. portraying, yes. Um, uh, you know, and that's, and there, there is a, I believe, a Buster Keaton movie um, called Steamboat Bill Jr., um, you know, uh, that's sort of one of those silent comedies that a lot of the cartoons sort of took inspiration from. And so I, I believe the name came from that. Um, but um, oh, cool. That's cool. Yeah. I wonder why Mickey. Um, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. Yeah, I want to look into it too. Um, Buster Keaton, incidentally, um, in one of his movies, references Gertie the Dinosaur um, as an inspiration. And uh, I believe in one of his films actually films himself riding an animated dinosaur or some other character. It's um, all related. Inspired directly from Gertie. Um, so, so yeah, so that kind of brings us to 1927, 1928. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, but again, it was just like Felix had the personality. He, you know, what was interesting about Felix is that Otto Mesmer, instead of inserting, like I said, himself physically into the films, he basically, he would create everything off the top of his head. He never scripted anything out. He basically, it was basically like stream of consciousness sort of storytelling. And what he would do is he would go back to his childhood and think about the things that he was curious about as a kid. You know, what is it like on the moon? What is it like on the bottom of the ocean? I wonder what it's like, you know, in a haunted castle or whatever. And then he was, and and then he used his cartoons and his character to explore those things. Mm. And so, so there was a lot of imagination in the character, um, you know, and there was a lot of deconstruction in the character. Felix could take off any body part that he needed to utilize if he needed to solve a problem. His tail, um, he was able to detach his tail and use it as a hook. Um, <laughs> he was able, or, you know, or a, or a, or a post or a, you know, whatever he needed to do. Um, his, his ears could clasp together like scissors if he needed to cut through something. Um, if he ever wondered about something, a question mark would appear above his head. Because remember, these are all silent films. A question mark would appear above his head, but then he could physically grab the question mark out of the air and utilize it in order to solve a problem. You know, so, so Felix starts getting back to that surrealist, um, 
that surrealist sense of um, Emil Cole and the incoherence, right? Back from, uh, you know, 1908, Mm -hmm. right? He starts inserting that back into it and makes cartoons more cartoony. Right. The way that we sort of know them today. And while Disney would sort of initially pick up on that, uh, it was really Warner Brothers in the 1930s who would sort of take that baton and run with it. But but Felix was really that first one that sort of reintroduced, and Otto Mesmer reintroduced this idea of like, cartoons are just cartoons. Mm-hmm. They shouldn't be restricted to the physics of our world, you know? You might draw a cartoon character walking up to the roof and sitting down. I'm going to draw Felix walking up to the roof and flying off of it. Mm-hmm. Because why... Why not? Why not? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it was just that sense of like carefree and wonder and imagination that made Felix such a draw at that time. You know? Yeah. And there's just, for some reason, there's just something about cats in in the history of mankind that we're just completely drawn to. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think they tapped into that. Whatever it was about the cat, people were just like, oh, you know? Um and that, you know, and like I said, he sort of reigned until Sullivan decided not to stay with the times and Disney kind of took over from there. But, you know. Are we really going to end it as you just mentioned? Disney? As we're about to get into Disney with the... Well, I mean, I just think... Well, no, I'll, I'll end it like this. Okay. Um, first and foremost... Um, oh, I have found a correlation between you with animation and improv. Okay. Because, you know, with a script, obviously you've got to follow the script and all of this, right? Mm-hmm. But with improv, you get to climb to the roof and then say, well, why can't I fly off of it? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's, that's, that's my way. I like it when you say that, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. I think, I think that's why I got into improv because if I couldn't be an animator then I you know I wanted to be in something that would allow me to still explore those ideas be creatively fulfilled and in control of that creativity you right know what I mean yeah to look at to look at a situation to create a situation and say well why can't I right go to the moon why can't I see yeah. you know what's at the bottom of the ocean and just explore it and then you ground it and then you ground it in something but yeah. you have you know and that's the thing about like you know, uh, Felix, he just has, he has his famous pace, you know, where he just paces around with his one hand behind his back and his chin in his hand. And, you know, and they would say that Otto Mesmer would do that in the studio. It was just, he was very clearly an analog for Otto Mesmer. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to clear up any confusion, Pat Sullivan is on the name as the creator of Felix the Cat because he was the studio owner. But it's generally accepted by everybody except for Australians that Otto Mesmer is the driving creative force. Why except for Australians? Because Pat Sullivan is Australian. Okay. And so they want to say that... Could have guessed. That he, <laughs> that he created them, but Otto Mesmer did it. So if you ever see Pat Sullivan as the creator, that's that's why. Okay. Um, okay, so I'll end it this way. So uh, a lot of people think, once again, sort of erroneously, that Snow White is the first animated feature. And I know this fact. Go on. But there are technically seven before it. <laughs> Am I right? Um, I believe, yeah. It's seven. Some of them are not as well known as others. Yeah. But the reason is Snow White is the feature length. Even though there was one that was technically 41 minutes and they, ca- they classed 40 minutes as a feature length. Mm-hmm. 
but it was kind of bits of Disney. And it wasn't like a full film, whereas Snow White was one coherent story. Right. Are you impressed? I'm very impressed. Hey, listen, you asked me to do something. I'm going to do some <laughs> research. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so once again, uh, as before, we can sort of slightly tweak our definition by saying that Snow White is the first hand-drawn animated uh, feature film. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the first sort of accepted, well, okay, the first two have been lost to time. They've mm-hmm. been destroyed. Yeah. Um, I believe they were done by, oh God, a South American Brazilian man, I believe. I thought um, it was full. But the one that exists that we can definitively say um, is the earliest that we know of and that we have was 1926. Mm-hmm. Um, Lottie Reiniger, German woman, um, creates The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. And that's the oldest surviving animated feature film. Um, it's done completely in um, like cut out puppetry. So it's not hand drawn. Mm-hmm. It's all done. But, it's, but she cut all of the figures out piece by piece. Um, it's done. So in, it's kind of like stop. stop it's definitely stop motion stop animation. Stop motion animation. Um, <laughs> like, but it's all. I've finished my mold wine. <laughs> it's all done through puppetry. But that it, um, technically is the oldest surviving animated feature film and it predates um it predates snow white by seven or eight years um and and i don't know if this is intentional but i like to believe it is Wait, but when did snow white come out that was 43 no snow white is 39 uh, th- no 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 it's earlier than that so keep guessing snow white <laughs> i think snow white's like 33 34 was it yeah are you sure i thought it was 43 well i don't know now you're making me question i know i'm gonna google okay this is unprecedented. We don't usually Google on this show. Live. Oh, am I not allowed? Um, but um, but uh, so at the beginning of Aladdin, mm-hmm. Disney's Aladdin, there is a character called Prince Ahmed that's mentioned. And I like to think that... 38. 38. February 4th. Okay. Um, Good job, Brett. So right in the middle of what we thought. Um, so, so yeah, so, uh, so Disney does throw a bit of a... Um, a nod to Prince Ahmed in the beginning of Aladdin, and creates a and creates a character called Prince Ahmed, um, sort of acknowledging which one. In um, I think he's just, I think he's just mentioned. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So so yes, I guess we're still ending on Disney. But oh, I love that stuff. Yeah, that's why it's so interesting to me. Yeah, you can't you can't get away from it, you know. And and like if you're if you're I love the layers. If you're a true student of and anything really, but like it's it's so easy for the layperson to just say, oh, it started with Disney and it ends with Disney, right? And now we've got DreamWorks and all of these things. But it's like when you really get Ooh, into deeper. it, yeah, it's it's all it's also connected. Guys from Warner Brothers started with Disney. Guys from Terry Tunes started with Disney. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Disney started. It's just you know, and and they and everybody builds off of what came before them sure and it's just it's fascinating for me to see that evolution and to answer your original question this is why i'm so into this because you've got the biggest character from the biggest company in the world and yet he didn't come from nothing you know he comes off of the back of hundreds of people before him and we've only touched on nine or ten you know but Without without those preceding thirty years, you don't have a, a Walt Disney Company, you don't have a Warner Brothers, you don't have a DreamWorks, you don't have a Pixar, and the thing is, is like if if you're in it, you understand that. 
and you pay homage to those things. That's why Gertie is at Disney. That's why Prince Ahmed is there. That's why, you know, that's why they they waited 70 years to get Oswald back. They, you know, it's just like this the history matters. But I think it's really it's okay to believe what you want to believe about the animation if Disney is your passion. But I think that in for this episode for what it's titled, what am I missing? You literally just took us under all those layers yeah. and helped us know, hey, it's even more fascinating because there are all of all of this wealth of information yeah. for why this exists. And I love knowing why. Yeah. And it doesn't discount anything that Disney did because mm-hmm. he took what basically what he did was he took the work of the previous 30 years and he tightened it up. He made it better. He made it more efficient and he made it profitable. Mm-hmm. But... He didn't invent it, you know? Right. And I think that's... But then but then the question remains, well, then who did in- invent animation? And I think everybody did. Because without everybody, the animation that we know today wouldn't exist. Everybody took parts of it right. and created it. Well, going back to the cavemen, like you said. Right. Hey, look, you brought it back around. Yep. Improv never leaves you. How about that? Yeah, boom. <laughs> well, thanks, Brett. No, thank you. That was really interesting. And we both finished the old wine. Yep. I think we learned that we liked it cold. Yeah, it was much better cold than it was hot. I know. I thought we'd like it because we like tea. And you kind of make mulled wine kind of like tea. Yeah. But this topic was really interesting. Well, good. Like I said, I'd like to continue um, at some point. I'm going to put you off for another 25 episodes. So episode 50, we'll get into Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Sure, okay. And I will talk all about him for an hour and a half. Brilliant. Listen, if I can get you to talk about a topic nonstop, <laughs> I'll do it. Great. Awesome. It's a date. Thanks, babe. Yep. Thank you. Love you. Love you too. Bye, guys. Bye. What Am I Missing is edited, produced, and hosted by me, Brett Walden, with original music by Anthony Smith. Special thanks to my wife, Gemma Walden, for not divorcing me immediately due to my unbearable geekiness. If you would like to know more about me or listen to past episodes, you can find it all at facebook.com slash whatamimissingpod. And if you have any questions, comments, or curses about anything you heard today, you can email me at whatamimissingpodcast at gmail.com. Please make sure to rate us on whatever app you choose to listen to your podcasts on and tell your friends about us. Pretty please. And now, here's a preview of next week's episode. And Sting, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. he his character used to be blonde flat top face paint and just like a real like yeah american (laughs) hero guy like everyone loved him yeah he was gone for like four months when nwo came on and then he just started appearing in the rafters with black hair and he painted his face like the crow thanks for listening